I'm Sue Brain, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to this second series of Embracing Your Mortality. I have a fantastic lineup of guests, all of whom are speaking from their hearts about what it means to them to be living more consciously for a better world. Some are deeply involved with building community and working with environmental issues. It's just all about natural history and wildlife. It's just so full of endless wonder and surprise. Some speak about death and dying. I can only see that it can help us to be more in contact with life when we're also able to talk about death. Others are holistic doctors and healers. Peace and silence and nature, absolutely central to me being the best person I can be. One is involved in helping children to understand their feelings and another is championing women in business. And I'm most grateful to Colin Gilbert's family who've given their permission to publish his interview about dying, which I did with him shortly before his death. I have this ability just to sweep everything with love, love and gratitude. If you haven't already, don't forget to listen to the first series of Embracing Your Mortality podcasts. Links to my guests in both series can be found on my website, suebrain.co.uk. Even though we're going through really challenging times, I hope all these conversations from both series inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. Joanna Lunn is a Canadian award-winning documentary filmmaker who I met back in 2015 when she invited me to take part in her documentary film on death and dying. Since then, Joanna has developed what was going to be one documentary into a series of fascinating films involving personal stories of near-death experiences, deathbed visions and more, to explore the question, does consciousness continue after death or is it lights out? Well, it's a funny thing to say interest in death and dying because right off the top, it's people go, uh, you know, <laughs> who is this weird lady, you know? But I think that, that really it started for me um, when I was 19 and in the three year period had three really significant deaths. So uh, I lost my mother, I followed shortly after by my very best friend who was like a sister to me growing up. And then the third death was as a passenger in a car driving out in the country. And uh, we came over a blind spot and an old dairy farmer was crossing the street. We hit him and he died in my arms. And so, uh, you know, any one of those things would have been enough, I'm sure. But, you know, by hitting three really traumatic deaths, uh, I was really thrown into a deep, deep grief state at a time grief wasn't acknowledged. You just simply, you lose your mother, that's really too bad. Well, you know, what do you want for dinner? It, it was a really rough period in my life that I kind of had to face climbing out of this deep, dark hole, because we know with grief, as soon as you start feeling a little bit better, you can be thrust right back down into yeah. this deep sinkhole. And it was a really rough ride at, a, at an age where I hardly knew who I was, let alone how to deal with such strong emotions. And then my first job out of university 
was uh, being a researcher for a possible PBS movie on death and dying in the context of community. And so it gave me a chance to go talk to some of the early death pioneers like Kubler-Ross and, and others and, and uh, Stephen Levine. And it was a way of educating myself and learning and also really kind of finally contextualizing what was, what was going on with me. We put together a fabulous movie. PBS said, wow, in the U.S. It's like BBC. It's a public broadcaster. But they said, this is really too taboo. We don't think our audiences are ready for this yet. But when I came to a sort of a gap in my, um, what am I going to make next life? And I was talking to a wonderful friend of mine who, who's a mentor in many ways. And she's saying, what do you have? What do you have? And I go, well, I've got this. No, that's no good. Well, what else? I've got this. No, that's no good. Kind of came to the end of things that I'd been researching. And she said, you have to have something else. And I said, well... I've always wanted to come back to this subject. It's always been with me all these years to, you know, help popularize this conversation, make it normal around death and dying. She said, that's it. That's it. So that's how it all came around. It's always been with me. Making these films, what's it done for you? That's such a great question. (laughs) Well, it's life-giving for me. You know, I feel so blessed. I've had many different roles in film and television as a festival programmer and director of a festival, um, creator of children's film festivals, um, the first English language competitive festival in North America, and as a broadcaster commissioning films. And now, you know, as an independent producer. All along the way, I feel like the gift of working in this industry is the gift of receiving stories. And so I feel so blessed and I feel a great responsibility when somebody shares their stories with me and shares their thoughts and wisdom and experience that, you know, I have this obligation to as faithfully as possible, give it to a broad audience. Has it changed your relationship with death and dying? Oh, yeah, it definitely has. It definitely has. I mean, I think I had a pretty broad sense of death and dying. But I think that this process with In the Realm of Death and Dreaming, which is the first of four films that are be coming out uh, under the When You Die project, that uh, I have discovered in many ways in the course of this, that human beings are more extraordinary than I could have possibly imagined. You know, the depth of our ability to perceive the world around us, to love deeply, to live more fully, you know, really, 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 I think to live more fully and more confidently is, has been a huge gift. I agree with you because in my experience of life, it's, it's kind of quite tough here. And we yeah. do have the most extraordinary resilience, even if we really don't want to take part in life, we're still here. You know, I think all of us need a bravery reward, actually. This sort of sense of love certainly has kept me going. And I wonder what that was for you. Yeah, well, I do think this goes back to, again, being the researcher back on this film that never happened long, long ago in a wide-eyed little 20-something. One of the things I did was go to a long-term care facility. This whole project was in the U.S. I sat with people who were dying. You know, the nurses would say, well, you know, Gladys down 6B, 
She has no family. So you go sit with her. The very first death that I ever witnessed and was there for was this woman who was in her 90s, very much unconscious, on her way out. I just, you know, slipped my hand underneath hers and just was there, just just was there. And in this very thin little voice, she said, I feel as though I am suspended in a net of love. Big stuff, right? That has stayed with me my entire life, this idea that really we are held in love. I'll share a story with you too, which just feeds into this. When I was a nurse, that's how I started off my working career, I was looking after this really lovely little old lady and giving her bars and stuff. And I was on night duty and I walked into her room and she was actually having the death rattle. So she was definitely dying. I kind of walked out of the room. It was very strange what happened. I walked out of the room, then straight back into the room. And by that time, the entire room had been filled with the perfume of roses and flowers. And the whole room just filled with love. You know, this is... 40 years ago, 50 years ago, something happens. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. It's, it's so amazing. It sort of points to the spiritual nature of humans, not religion, none of that stuff, just the spiritual nature of being human. I also have had a mystical experience in my life where I was taken into the love of the universe. And again, it's a long time ago, but it's these things that you don't forget. But Why is it so hard for us then when we're actually here in physical form to experience that love? I think this is part of what I was so curious in in the realm of death and dreaming to look at. The next chapter is called The Architecture of Death, and that gets into more of the deathbed experiences. So in this one, it was really, well, what is consciousness? Is it generated by the brain? Is it free floating and we're just little receptors plugging into it? And that was a really honest, you know, investigation on my part. I mean, I sensed we were always greater, you know, so I did have a bias in that direction. But it seems very clear that um, whatever side of that that you're on, and I'm definitely on the, the side that there is a greater consciousness, you know, you might call it a ground consciousness that is just available. And that by nature of being embodied in a human body, we have kind of like a heavy filter, you know, that consciousness itself isn't bound by a body or form of any sort. And that's kind of outside of our day-to-day experience. So we don't really know how to access that. I think it helps to do meditation. I think athletes reach a certain kind of, you know, when they say that you're in the groove, when you're kind of in the, in the moment with running or whatever, you're kind of reaching those sorts of peak states where, where it's accessible. I think what was interesting for me, although it's not so much in this film, but I did speak to a lot of people who are on the cutting edge of studying consciousness. You know, in fact, the biggest nerd fest I ever went to was the International Conference on Consciousness that happens in Europe one year and the US the other. It goes back and forth. And these are Nobel Prize nominated scientists, even a couple that have won Nobel. I mean, these are smart people. And I'm sitting in this room with 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of total nerds. I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't speak this language, you know, but it was fascinating. You know, I sort of acclimated and, you know, had a chance to really talk in normal English to, to some of these people about what they were researching. The ones that had been doing it for the course of their career said, you know, we started out as a total materialist. The brain generated everything. There was nothing outside of us. And then there was this clear kind of progression. Suddenly, they found themselves moving from a hardcore materialistic point of view to now becoming very spiritual people because they're discovering through their research, you know, which is like personal experience, that there are things that they cannot measure. It's the glue that connects us all. But because we're just not taught to talk like this, we're taught to be goal-orientated and thought-orientated and you've got to be a success and you've got to be a this and put this label on and you'll be happy. Real connection with the life experience is not like that at all. It is about linking to something greater, but what is that? Well, you know, I sort of have a a bit of a theory uh, about our generation in particular that, you know, our parents were in the Great War, right? World War II. It was horrible, as war is. It is horrible. And that I know my father did a lot of suicide missions in, in Italy. I mean, he was nearly dead many, many times. And by the time he came back to the U.S. and the war was over, they didn't want to think about war. They didn't talk about war. They stuffed all of that deep trauma and grief. But my family, they drank a lot, you know, for sure. That was culturally to do that. And then it just turned their mind to creating a better society. Agriculture became a business. You could buy things on credit. You know, you couldn't have a washing machine before. Well, now you can. And then you became a slave to an economic model. And every step of the way was one of just stuffing whatever was going on, you know, that your value, your well-being was that you could have nice things and be in a nice little house and have your children in the picket fence and the garden and the whole bit. Obviously, you know, we rebelled against all of that. <laughs> so I, I think that in a way that was a real shutting down in, into materialism mm-hmm. to avoid some very difficult, again, because culturally, we didn't have a way of dealing with all that, that grief, that much grief, that much loss. And I think right now we're faced with a world that's suffering tremendous loss. And I hope that we can do a better job of shepherding a grief process globally. I think the other thing from what I understood that really changed society for our parents was the analgesics that came up through the Second World War, where doctors were able to start working to preventing pain or reducing pain. And that sort of chucked out the priests at the bedside. They didn't want that anymore. They wanted the doctors there, obviously, because it hurt and they want pain relief. And thank God for that. You know, I don't want to be in a world without analgesics, thanks very much. Time comes, I'd really like some help if I need it. The, The taboo of death, I think it's shifting. And I wonder what you think about that. It is in the sense that with global pandemic going on, we can't avoid death. In fact, we are fed it every day in the media to really an extreme. It's out there, you know, it's out there. And now it's a question of 
whether, you know, we can move from fear to, you know, grief. Really just like, let's get off the fear campaign. It's crushing. It's crushing. You need to now begin to see what grief is to support grieving. And how weird as this is going to sound, I think when I was that young 20 something and going through all of these, you know, deep losses, I didn't even know what grief was. I mean, I don't even think I knew the word grief. And I think that it was many, many years later when a therapist said to me, one of the, the hugest human emotions is grief. And I looked at him like, grief is an emotion. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know. I just didn't know. We know about love and anger and sadness. You know, those things we talk a lot about. I think grief, it's like, wow. Grief is about getting down and dirty, isn't it? That's the thing with yourself. And in my experience of grief, it brings up absolutely everything that I have not resolved. I went through a huge grieving about seven years ago, and I felt like my body was going to break. It's not a fun feeling. You know, I was down this kind of canyon, just going, what? <laughs> in our culture, we're not taught to sob and cry in other uh, societies and cultures. They do something called keening, which is basically tearing the hair out, ripping their clothes. They express themselves. Grief isn't just about death. It, I mean, in the big D death, you know this, right? I mean, when my marriage of 24 years ended and my daughter was graduating and taking a gap year before university. And so she's in Mongolia, sold the house, and I'm in this new strange place surrounded by boxes. You know, I went into a deep, deep grief place. And it isn't pleasant. It isn't pleasant at all. But uh, it's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. And there's the opportunity for real transformation. If you're brave enough and you can go into that space, you can shift from, and you never stop grieving, by the way. I'm not saying you, grief is something you get over. I'm not saying that at all. But you can, you know, what, what my process really led me to was instead of trying to hang on to the very thing that's gone, saying, who am I now? That was a hugely transformational moment. Mm -hmm. Many people have created incredible things in that grief process, written books, created sculptures, all kinds of artwork and nonprofit organizations. Many were born out of a grief moment. So in that sense, it's very creative. Although if I had said this to myself while I was going through that, I would have gone, yeah, well, you know. For me, it actually made me write more and it threw me into really, really considering my mortality. And it's helped me to completely release my fear of death because I felt I lost so much and I couldn't lose anything more now. Because of it, I'm so much more a centered human being doing things I really believe in. It stripped away all the nonsense. Definitely that did, because that's when I left broadcasting. It's sort of like the marriage and the role as, as a mother, you know, that role of the young child was gone. I just blew everything up. I lost my secure income. 
for better or worse, you know. And it was liberating in that sense that why do I need to live under all of these rules that feel so restrictive of my basic nature? And I found a whole new voice and a whole new way of being. Do you like yourself better now? I do. I love myself. (laughs) I think when you kind of face yourself in the depth of despair and pain and all the stuff that goes with it, that's when I started to like myself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I ever thought about the idea of genuine kindness to oneself and not recognizing that really when you are kind and loving to yourself is when you are most able to be of benefit to other people. That was a big shift. I want to know more about the films. You're creating a a series of four. The first one is just the outline of what happens as we die and you just just put it out there. Mm -hmm. Yep, just that question. I wanted to do that sort of big question, you know, does consciousness continue after death? Really, I have no judgment about what somebody feels that way, you know, but I wanted to put it out there and I wanted it to be accessible to people who have never thought about that question um, and people who have thought about that question, because I feel like what you believe happens when you die affects downstream the decisions you make about your end of life. And I think decisions about your life, but particularly about the kinds of decisions that you make as you're approaching your death. The next one is the architecture of death, which really looks at, as one of the the doctors in in, in that chapter says, you know, we think that, you know, we're alive now and then we die, but it's a process. So it's kind of looking at that process physically, and psychologically what goes on in the mind. And so this is this is where some of those, all the deathbed experiences, visions, dreams, whatever, it's not just dead relatives coming, but that whole area where you have a premonition, maybe it's you about you, or maybe it's about someone else, you know, that you don't get on that airplane or that something has happened, you've lost a loved one. And then it turns out you have the light filled rose scented, room you know you've done this work you've worked on all of these things i know you understand how much more common than we would ever imagine that these things are and i think that's important just like i think it's important to understand that when someone's dying you know their consciousness relaxes and starts to expand out it's charged in the room of a person who's dying. It's really, really charged. And that when we enter into that room, in a sense, in a weird way, we're almost like inside their consciousness. We're Mm -hmm. in there. So it's very intimate and how to be and behave and support that situation. I guess the other part of that too, is that because death is real, how medicalized do you want those last days to be? You know, because you are alive until the minute you die. That's what the architecture of death is looking at. Mm -hmm. The third installment is saying goodbye. This is really making meaning of life. It is as someone who's losing a loved one, as the loss of your own life. How can we say goodbye? You know, how how do we let go? I know a lot of the way I've been talking is as if you know that you're going to die. You've got a kind of physical cancer or something. And so you've got that diagnosis. But so many deaths are not like that, you know, a heart attack, a car accident, you know, any number of sudden things. And yet still those signs are there. 
Absolutely. That's what's so interesting, really. Those kind of things make me very curious. And suddenly somebody thinking, oh, I need to make my will out of the blue. (laughs) And I mean, it's always a good thing to do, obviously, but it's just about, is it in the nature? Is it in their personality? What is going on here? That that's that whole unseen world that actually there's some, whether it's in our nervous system or whatever, you know, that we have some connection to that we're very unconscious of. It's just like when you feel someone coming up behind you on a street, but you don't hear anything, but your body feels it. I run a death cafe for a Christian group. I'm not personally Christian, but they asked me to do it and I was very happy to do it. And this is Protestant Christians over in the UK. Every single one of them, after their spouse had died or their mother or father had died, every single one of them said they felt a presence. Mm -hmm. Nine, all saying the same thing. And they had never met before. Wow. And one said, they came into the room and there were three of them came into the room. And she said, it was so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. I know it was. Yeah. There's something happens. We don't, it's not just a, the light switch doesn't suddenly go off. I'm with you on this point. <laughs> Again, it's just like, we are more extraordinary than we realize. All the things that you've experienced in making the films and stuff like that, how's it impacted your own relationship with your death? I'm sure that I will feel a little bit of death, but I'm not really afraid of death. I'm not, you know, it's not something that that turns me off. But I, I also do know I really like being alive. And so I'm not, you know, I think I'll have difficulty letting go a little bit. And knowing that about myself, you know, I realize that if there are a lot of people in the room with me, I won't be able to let go because I'll be like, hey, the party's on. I'm here, you know. <laughs> but I'm not afraid of death. I mean, on, on, on a big level, I think I'm not afraid of death. But there's little places, little hooks, what I love about being alive. Do you think about your death? I think that what I, how I relate to that question is that more like a practice, that I um, do take the time to imagine what it would be like a feeling of in the body to to leave the body to to let go of the body to be not so identified with the physical body like what would it be like to leave that because i'm very attached to my body <laughs> and so in, in that sense you know i think this is where there's that, that kind of um well a certain sort of grief or um remorse or you know feelings of leaving something that's sweet you know this life behind. When you say that you you feel there's more work to be done in this area, what's the most important thing for you now? Well, I'm still very much in the edit suite, getting these other films taken care of. And now that this first one in the realm has come out, I'm very busy um, talking with different communities. Like there's a a Sufi group that's using it on a retreat, or there's um, a couple of uh, medical schools that want to show it to their students and fellows. That's really important to me because it is all about the conversation, having the conversation, normalizing death. You know, there was a wonderful study done, uh, and it was, I believe, in the UK, that um, they looked at households where people grew up where death was a taboo subject. And they looked at households 
where people talk, they grew up with the subject, you know, they, they weren't afraid to talk about death. And people who grew up in households where death was an ordinary um, conversation, it wasn't taboo, were funnier than people who didn't. And I, I like that because it means if you can laugh, if you've got a great sense of humor, you are a fuller, you know, you're having a fuller living experience. So this conversation around death and dying isn't just about preparing for your own death. It's really about living more fully. Joanna Lunn, documentary filmmaker about death, dying and consciousness. You can watch When You Die through her website, whenyoudie.org. It's poignant that my next guest is Colin Gilbert, who died from cancer shortly after his interview. Sorry, this journey, none of us are getting out of alive. We will go to that door. All of us will go to that door. But it's how we approach that door. Colin wanted to talk about his relationship with death to help other people to come to terms with their own death. You've been listening to Embracing Your Mortality and I look forward to you joining me again next time. You can find out more about me through my website, suebrain.co.uk. In the meantime, here's to us all living more consciously for a better world. The Embracing Your Mortality podcast was researched and recorded by Sue Brain and produced and edited by the Podcast Den.